Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4 and considering a salvation not to be neglected. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, give attention to God's holy word. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered to worship you. But we acknowledge that we cannot worship unless we behold your glory. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would pour out your spirit during this time of preaching, that we might behold your glory, and in beholding your glory, be transformed into that same image of glory by the Spirit of the Lord. We pray, O Lord, for the Spirit to be poured out, and that you would bless our time. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as some of you may know, uh, I have only a certain number of anecdotes and stories that I use. One of those is that we spent a summer in Charleston, South Carolina. It's one of our favorite cities, and you may not know this about Charleston, South Carolina, but its nickname is the Holy City. It's called the Holy City because in old Charleston, if you look at the skyline, there are churches everywhere. Charleston has been traditionally and historically a city of churches. Now, most of these churches were built in the colonial period or before, up until about the 19th century. And so what you find in these churches is steeples. These are old, traditional-type churches with tall steeples. One of the churches in particular has a very interesting steeple. It's known as uh, Second Presbyterian Church. There's still a congregation meeting there. One of the great Southern Presbyterians, John Girardot, ministered out of this church. And the steeple of Second Presbyterian is odd when you first look at it. When you you walk up to a church and you look at the steeple, you expect that the steeple is going to be square with the rest of the building. You expect the windows to follow the angles of the foundation and the building as a whole. Second Presbyterian's steeple, however, is not square with the building. The reason for this is that when they built the steeple, the city councilors and the mayor asked the church, can you build this steeple so that in an emergency we can use it as a lighthouse? And so the steeple of Second Presbyterian has these massive windows in the steeple, and they are angled to serve as a lighthouse for the harbor. They're not square with the rest of the building. Now, I tell you this story to to highlight the importance of lighthouses. Lighthouses are an invention that made sea navigation much safer. 
I don't know if anybody has done any sailing in the open water. Uh, some of my relatives have. My father-in-law was in the Navy. And one of the things you learn when you're out in open water, on the ocean, when it's dark and stormy and the waves are rolling and tossing the boat like a cork in a bathtub, is that there is nothing solid to fix your eyes on. When the sky is dark, the sea is black. And when you're being tossed up and down, there's no horizon except that lighthouse off in the distance. The lighthouse is the guidepost for sailors to make it safely to the harbor. And when sailors are trying to make it to the harbor, they have to fix their attention on the lighthouse. Because when you're at sea and the waves are rolling, if you do not stay focused on that lighthouse, you will lose your direction, crash on the rocks, or sink to the bottom of the ocean. And so the city fathers of Charleston asked Second Presbyterian, can we use this as a lighthouse? In case the main lighthouse goes down, we're going to need another one because ships are coming into our harbor. Well, likewise, in this life, it is, as it were, that we are on the ocean waves. We are sailing in a boat, and as Christ teaches us in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, the waves are rolling and casting you every which way. And unless your eyes are fixed on the lighthouse, unless you are giving diligent attention to the guidepost, you will drift away. Unless your eyes are fixed on that lighthouse, you will drift away. That's what we find in this passage. In this passage, the author is exhorting us, in light of the glories of Christ, in light of Christ's greatness, you need to give the more earnest heed to the things that he has said, lest you drift away. There's really two things in this passage. There's an exhortation and a comparison. The author exhorts us, and then he compares the old light with the new light. In verse 1, there's the exhortation. And in verses 2 through 4, there's the comparison with the old lighthouse and the new lighthouse. And what the author is telling us is that in the light of the glories of Christ, you must pay attention more diligently. You must give more earnest heed to the gospel that has been spoken to you. And as I said, there's two things in this passage, an exhortation and a comparison. We begin with the exhortation. Something to notice first off about the language that the author uses in verse 1. He uses nautical terms. The language that he uses here, they come straight out of sailing. We must give the more earnest heed lest we drift away. Those terms come straight out of sailing. And the idea behind these terms is that when you're on the ocean waves... You have to fix your eyes upon one point, and your attention cannot be drawn away from that point because the water is unstable. You know, one time I went to uh, Minnesota and did some fishing on the lakes, and some of those lakes are very large. And in the summertime in Minnesota, storms will kick up all of a sudden, windstorms and rainstorms. And if you're on the middle of a lake, 
canoeing across open water, when the wind kicks up, you have to pay attention to what you're doing. In fact, there was one time I was with a young man, and uh, we took some of the youth from our church in Georgia up to the lakes, and we were going across this wide stretch of an open lake. The wind kicked up, the rain was coming, and there was a beautiful view on this side of the lake, beautiful cliff with the trees. He takes out his camera and starts taking pictures of this view as we're trying to get across the lake. Well, I had to exhort him to put the camera down and pick the paddle up because we were going to tip over. He was not paying attention to what he was doing. We understand this when it comes to navigating across the water, even canoeing or sailing in massive ships. The author then uses these ideas to talk about the spiritual life. Notice that what he says. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Very interesting, isn't it, that the exhortation to Christian maturity is to master the fundamentals. Notice he doesn't say that you must learn more about Christ. He doesn't say that you need to read more books about Christ. He says you need to give earnest heed to the things you have already heard. And what are the things that we've already heard? Well, chapter 1. Christ is king and he has accomplished salvation. Just as a reminder, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the author says, God has spoken to us through his Son, who is the heir of all things, who made the worlds, who is the brightness of the glory of the Father, who upholds all things by the word of his power, who by himself has purged our sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The basic message of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King of Kings. Jesus has accomplished and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Hallelujah, Christ reigns. That's the basic message of the gospel. And he says you must give more diligent heed to these things. This exhortation is doubly important in our day. In fact, there are some in the Reformed churches who are attempting to bring in doctrines that contradict this basic truth of the gospel. There is an author, if you want to know who she is, you can ask me later, but there is an author who is in print saying Jesus does not rule. Black and white, she says, Jesus does not rule. It, this may seem like uh, a minor point to us, because in our church and perhaps in your circles, this doctrine is not questioned very much. But the doctrine of Christ ruling and reigning, as we learn in the book of Hebrews, but also as we learn in the book of Romans, chapter 10, is the basis of all of our hope and salvation. Look at what Paul says in Romans, chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul is exhorting the Romans to faith in the gospel, and he's telling them that the, the, the summary statement of your faith, 
the thing that you need to confess, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So at the very beginning of the church age, under the ministry of the apostles, when they did membership interviews, <laughs> the, the, the sum of their questions was, do you believe Jesus is Lord? And if you confessed that Jesus was Lord, you were brought into the church and baptized. This is the basic foundational truth of the gospel. And you need to give more earnest heed to it. You need to fix your anchor upon this. You need to uh, lash your boat to this the way they lash boats to a cleat on the dock. You ever seen sailors tie their boat to the dock on those cleats? They don't loop it once around the cleat. They don't loop it twice around the cleat. They, they loop it four, five, six, seven, eight times around that same cleat. Because that cleat is, what gonna, is what's going to keep the boat from drifting away. Likewise is the lordship of Jesus Christ. A couple of implications of this, why this is so critical. If Christ is not Lord, you are still in your sins. If Christ is not the Lord of heaven and earth, you are still in your sins. Because if he's not the sovereign Lord, he has no authority to forgive you. But if he is the sovereign Lord, as he tells the disciples in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, make disciples, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. Christ is Lord, therefore you have the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, if Christ is not Lord, you have no hope. There is no hope for the future. If Christ is not ruling and reigning right now. Christ tells the disciples in John 16 that we read at the beginning of the pastoral prayer, in the world you're going to have tribulation. In this life, the winds and the waves will come and the tiny raft of your life will be tossed up and down. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have already arrived in the safe harbor. I have lit the lighthouse by which you navigate into eternity. If Christ is not Lord, none of these things are true. Finally, as, as Paul will say in the book of Corinthians, if, if Christ is not Lord, what we're doing here this morning is just empty noise. There's no point. We, we might as well go home and watch the game. If Christ is not Lord. But you see, Christ is Lord. And because he is Lord, he has established his church. And in establishing his church, he has poured out the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, as we're going to learn later on, is what makes the word effectual. It's what makes the word produce a result in your lives. This is all because Christ is the Lord. Well, the author of Hebrews says we have to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest, notice what he says in verse 1 still, lest we drift away. Now, the language that the author uses here is very unique to this letter. 
In fact, the word in Greek, drifting away, this is the only place it's used in this, uh, maybe the only place it's used, but I know that it's the only place it's used in this connection, metaphorically, to talk about your soul. Now, think about what it means to drift away. You know, again, when I was in Minnesota, most of my nautical illustrations come from Minnesota on canoes, so bear with me. I was with another young man, and we're, we're training the youth how to hack it in the woods, how to manage a canoe and to go through the lakes. And when, when you're in a canoe, you have the guy in the front and the guy in the back. When you get into a new lake, you have to work together. One guy gets in, and then he sort of holds the boat next to the shore so the second guy can get in. Well, this young man, very good kid, just unexperienced with canoes. He gets in the front, and he's, he's diligently trying not to tip the boat over. So he has arms and legs inside the boat, paddle is in the boat, he's not moving. He's just, I'm not going to tip this thing over, I'm going to do my job. Well, as I'm on the bank, I have one foot on the bank and one foot in the boat. Some of you know where this is going. I, I'm trying to get in the boat, and it slowly drifts away. It keeps drifting and drifting and drifting until finally I'm in the drink, He's embarrassed, and I'm wet up to my shoulders. When you drift away, it's not that he was trying to get me in the water. It's not that he was trying to sabotage my entry into the boat. It just drifted away. It, it, it moves away through neglect, through not paying attention, through not being active in what you ought to be doing. That's the idea that the author uses here. The danger is, in your life and in my life as Christians, a slow and imperceptible drifting away from the Lord. Simply veering off because of inattention. There's, there's several things that make this likely in a person's life, but I'm only going to highlight two. One of them is your own flesh. One of the things we have to realize about ourselves is that we are sinners. Amen and amen. That doesn't just mean we, we have committed sins and that we bear guilt outside of Christ for our sins, but that also means that in our own hearts, According to our own desires, we are contrary to God's ways. We resist God's truth and we push it to the side or we simply neglect it because it holds no interest for us, naturally speaking. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 where Paul draws this contrast in the life of the believer. And I want to encourage you that this is a, a contrast in the believer's life. The believer is the one who has this battle. The unbeliever has no battle because they're not living. But when God makes us alive, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this. Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh 
lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another. Now listen carefully, brothers and sisters. So that you who have confessed the Lord Jesus, so that you who have been baptized in the name of the triune God, so that you do not do the things that you wish. This conflict is a conflict in the Christian's life. Flesh and spirit. The spirit wrestling with your heart, saying, pay attention. Put your paddle back in the water. And your flesh saying, oh, pretty pictures. That's a battle in everyone's life who is a Christian. The flesh and the spirit. Notice what Paul says. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There's a very important dynamic that Paul's talking about. And this relates to taking heed lest we drift away. One of the reasons that we don't take heed to the gospel is because of our flesh. And what Paul is saying here is that your flesh resists the work of the Spirit naturally, of its own. We can say it this way. Christ comes to us in the gospel and says, believe in me and you will have life everlasting. And our heart says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to. I don't want to. Christ says, offer up your hearts to me in prayer and I will answer your prayers. And we say, no, I don't want to. Christ says, diligently search the scriptures and you will know more of my glory and goodness and life for you. And our heart says, no, I don't want to. Paul goes on to describe the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. There's more, but these all fit into one category. All of these sins that Paul describes relate to unfaithfulness to our commitments. Adultery is a violation of marriage vows. Fornication is living like animals. Uncleanness and lewdness is not walking as a holy child of God. All of these things relate to not living up to our commitments. And this is, if you're honest with yourself, this is what our flesh wants to do, isn't it? Our flesh is inclined to these things. Our flesh does not take vows seriously. Not only does our flesh not take these things seriously, look at the culture around you. No-fault divorce, dating apps, fornication rampant across our college campuses, uncleanness and lewdness. In fact, in some churches, it's considered a mark of sincerity. It's considered a mark of authenticity if your pastor cusses a little bit from the pulpit. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Lewdness and uncleanness. These are carnal. Paul goes on. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. How many of us have been in a place where... We are simply going, we we simply want to separate from people because they did something to us. 
We throw our hands up and say, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do this anymore. Dissensions, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who allow these things in their life, those who are inclined and do not deal with these sins, will drift away. They will depart from the Lord Jesus. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice Paul goes on though. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. I'm spending so much time on this because your flesh is your greatest enemy. And your flesh is primarily what causes you not to pay attention to Christ. But glory be to God, Paul tells us the solution to your flesh and the solution to your sinful heart is found in Christ. If you are in Christ, your flesh has been crucified with him. Your flesh is mortified with Christ. And so to walk in the life of the Spirit, you have to mortify your flesh. You have to deny yourself. You have to, through the power of Christ and the power of the Spirit, cultivate a love for Christ and a love for the things of Christ by giving heed to and paying attention to the things of Christ. Notice he says at the end there, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. I want to challenge everybody in this room as I challenge myself with something like this. The next time you feel up on your dignity, what that means is you feel like you've been insulted. You feel like somebody's done something against you. They've shamed you in some way. The next time you feel that way, mortify it. Don't indulge it. Just as Paul said, don't be conceited. Don't envy one another. Mortify that through Christ. My dignity, my personal reputation is not as important as faithfulness to Christ. Mortify these things and so give heed to what you have heard. Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews, goes on. He gives us this exhortation showing us the danger is a danger of drifting away. It's a danger of losing our course and not following to the end what Christ has laid out for us. And then he gives a contrast. And the contrast that he gives is that the, the light of the Old Testament was glorious. The light of the New Testament is even more glorious. The, the brightness of this lighthouse is even more impressive than the brightness of that lighthouse. You can think about it this way. If you were traveling along the um, South Carolina coast and you wanted to make it up to North Carolina, you, you would travel along the coast and you see the first lighthouse in Charleston, but as you pass that lighthouse, you're, you're moving on. You have to find the next lighthouse. You don't keep looking at the one behind you. 
You have to keep going in the direction you want to go. Likewise, here, the danger for this audience, for the readers of this letter, is that they're focused on the old light of Moses. They're focused on the old light of the angels and not looking forward to the light of the triune God. Look at what he says. Verse 2, he says, For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So he begins the comparison by saying, the words spoken through angels, that's a reference to the Old Testament. It's a reference to the law of Moses. The, the understanding from passages in the Old Testament and a little bit of Jewish tradition, although it's good Jewish tradition, is that when God came down on Mount Sinai and Moses delivered the law and the covenant to the people, there was a myriad of angels along with him. This is seen in some of the stories from the book of Genesis. When uh, Abraham's servant Hagar left Abraham's house, an angel found her and brought her back. When Jacob saw his vision of Jacob's ladder, he saw angels ascending and descending. When Jacob came back to the promised land and he had to face his brother, um, he had to, to face his brother Esau, he was met by a company of angels. When the tabernacle was made, they put all kinds of angelic artwork in the tabernacle. So the Old Testament economy was an economy of angels revealing the law through the hands of Moses to the people. And the author says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, was immovable. If the word spoken by angels would bring wrath upon you if you transgressed. See what he says? Every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Now he starts this comparison. This is important for the rest of the book of Hebrews. We, we often, I think, disparage the Old Testament. We, we often look at the New Testament and think, well, the Old Testament was bad, New Testament good. That's not the point. The point of the book of Hebrews, you see it here, Old Testament good, New Testament better. Old Testament glorious, New Testament more glorious. Old Testament, obedience was required. New Testament, obedience is even more required. Old Testament, wrath came upon those who disobeyed. New Testament, greater wrath comes upon those who disobey the New Testament. That's the force of his argument here. He's highlighting the danger. It says if the, the angels spoke these things, they received a just reward if you disobeyed or transgressed. One last thing to note here. When he talks about drifting away in verse 1, this language of drifting away is parallel to transgression and disobedience. In the logic of his argument, these ideas are parallel. Now, we sometimes think about transgressions and disobedience as something willful. We, we might think sometimes about uh, ourselves when we were children. And mom says, don't touch that thing. What does the child do? He touches the thing. Wh whatever the thing is. Don't eat the cookie, he eats the cookie. Don't touch the toy on the shelf. That was my big sin. You can ask my mother. 
Don't touch the thing on the shelf, and I would touch every single thing on the shelf. We think about disobedience that way, active, willful, trying to disobey. But notice how he describes transgression and disobedience. It's not as if they're trying to disobey. It's not as if they're willfully disobeying. They're disobeying through neglect. They're just not conscious that they're transgressing God's commandments. You remember the story of David and the ark? David was bringing the ark up into Jerusalem. They put it on a cart of oxen, and the the ark is about to fall off. And Uzzah, probably a godly man, probably sincerely loves Jehovah, Uzzah goes to steady the ark. He's doing what he thinks is a good thing. God struck him dead on the spot because Uzzah transgressed. He violated God's law. Not because he was trying to. He was trying to honor the Lord. But he wasn't paying attention, and he drifted away. Likewise, in our lives, we often will transgress through neglect. We will often transgress because we're not paying attention. In the Old Testament law, there was a provision for sins of ignorance. You had to offer up sacrifices for sins that you committed ignorantly. The Israelite just wasn't aware that this is a sin. And yet they still had to offer sacrifices for it. How does this happen in our lives? Well, let me, let me say it this way. There are untold opportunities that have been missed in the Christian's life by neglecting to read the Bible. Every day. There are untold opportunities you've missed when you say to yourself, I should read the Bible, but I don't want to. And you go on to do something else. I'll give you an anecdote from my family life. Not to put my family up, but it happened recently and it illustrates this point almost perfectly. We've been in the habit in my family of reading a chapter of Proverbs every morning. Sit down, read a chapter of Proverbs. Sometimes we have good conversations. Sometimes we don't, and we just pray and go about our day. Well, one morning recently, it was a busy morning. I thought, I'm tired. I don't want to read the Bible right now. I really don't want to read it with the kids. But the Lord convicted me, and I said, no, we have to read it. So we sat down, read the book of Proverbs. I don't remember what chapter it was. But it's the chapter that speaks about foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it out of him. That sparked a very good conversation with my kids about why they get disciplined, why mommy and daddy have to train them, and what we're doing. Now, if I had listened to my flesh and neglected to read the scriptures with my family at that moment, that conversation wouldn't have happened. That understanding of where my children are would not have come out. This is what I'm talking about. Tiny, small neglect leads inevitably to greater and greater transgressions. Here's another one that's probably more common, that's common to a lot of us. Entertainment is a Pandora's box of evil. And it happens in this way. We tell ourselves, well, this this show or this movie, it's just a movie. And then some wickedness is displayed on the screen, and what does our heart do? It 
is inclined toward that wickedness. We begin to sympathize with the one committing sin, with the one committing some type of transgression. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can be any kind of transgression. You know, one of the movies I think that is probably most dangerous in this regard is Ocean's Eleven. Why is it so dangerous? Those guys are liars, crooks, and thieves. But they're presented as handsome, charming, funny. You'd want to have a beer with these guys. And so you're made to like crooks and thieves. You see how this works? Very subtle departures can lead to gross transgressions. Well, he goes on to say, if this was true under the Old Testament, if every disobedience and transgression received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape the wrath of God if in the gospel of Christ he's given you the greatness of his own glory? If we neglect that, how do you expect to escape God's wrath? How do you expect to make it to the safe harbor? What do you think will happen if a ship in the open ocean loses its way and it drifts forever on the waves? Everybody dies and it sinks to the bottom. That's what happens. Likewise in your life, if you neglect what God has given you in Christ, you will not escape. This is, this is something that we have to remember. And this is something that's often not taught in a lot of Christian literature or a lot of Christian churches. The reason you should believe in Christ is because you are subject to the wrath of God. The reason to flee to the Lord Jesus is because if you don't, you will die in hell forever. You will receive, as Paul describes in the Thessalonian letters, destruction with flaming fire from his presence forever. There is no escape except through Christ. There is no deliverance except through Jesus, except through this great salvation God has given to us. Notice the greatness of the salvation. He begins to describe it a little bit. And he does it not through a multitude of angels, That's not the greatness of this salvation. The greatness of this salvation is through a multitude of divine persons. Look at what he says. This salvation is so great, it was first spoken by the Lord himself. The the message of salvation in Christ, the very first evangelist, was Christ himself. Christ came preaching, and what did he say? Repent and believe, for the kingdom is here. Believe in me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Look to me, all the earth, and be saved. The Lord himself spoke this word. Now, you have to remember who the Lord is. We read it. Chapter 1 describes it at length. He is God incarnate. He is the eternal Son of God who created all things by the word of his power He is the proper object of worship. He's the king of angels. This one came and said, believe in me and you will be saved. That's not only so. Christ spoke it and he sent out uh, servants. 
He sent out the apostles. Look at what he says. Chapter three, uh, verse 3, it was first spoken by the Lord, and it was confirmed unto us by those who heard him. This is a description of the apostles. The apostles were the ones who sat with Christ. They heard teaching directly from him. They heard the John 17 high priestly prayer. They were there with Christ from the beginning. This was also the criteria in Acts chapter 1 when they had to replace Judas. They said, we need to find somebody who's been with us from the beginning, who actually heard it from the mouth of Christ. John, his first letter, opens up his letter this way, saying, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. So Christ himself spoke, and then he sent out his apostles to confirm the word that was spoken. It's a very important lesson for you to encourage you. When you read the words of the apostles, you're reading the words of Christ. When you read the words of the apostles, you are reading the words of Christ. Notice the relationship between Christ and the apostles. Christ is the author of this word. It first began to be spoken by him, and the apostles are confirmatory. They support what Christ has said. They don't add to it in essence, but they support and expound and explain and apply what Christ has taught. And so now we see the lie in what many people will say that, well, Christ said this and Paul said this, I follow Christ. Paul is just an apostle. That's actually not how this works. Paul is an apostle, and Christ only speaks to us through the apostles. So Christ spoke this salvation. God the Father also bore witness to this salvation. Look at what he says in verse 4. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles. So you have Christ himself speaking the word of faith. You have the apostles confirming what was spoken and in the, in the horizontal, as it were, world of men. Christ and the apostles going across the world. On the vertical plane, God the Father is bearing witness and confirming what they're saying with signs and wonders and various miracles. Read the book of Acts. Demons are cast out. People are raised up from the dead. People are healed simply by a handkerchief that Paul blessed. All of these miracles are happening confirming the word of the gospel. Notice, though, what the author says. These miracles are not the miracles of men. These miracles are not the miracles of the apostles because they were so holy. These miracles were the acts of God the Father giving ratification to the gospel of his Son. When Peter and John healed the lame man in the book of Acts, the people asked them, how did this happen? And, and Peter says to them, don't look at us as if we're holy. Don't look at us as if we did anything. This man is made whole in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. So the miracles are God the Father confirming his word. Another application here. Notice what miracles do. The purpose of miracles. The purpose of miracles is to confirm the doctrine. You see how this is related. Christ spoke the doctrine. The apostles confirmed it. God the Father bearing witness 
signs, miracles, and wonders. The purpose of miracles are not to marvel our eyes. The purpose of miracles is not to make our hearts start to race. The, the purpose of miracles is to confirm the doctrine. Now, there's many, I think, in the church today who think, well, if only we could make a really good Christian movie. If only we could make a really good sort of miniseries of David's life. What a great miniseries that would be. David, Goliath, Bathsheba, Absalom. Man, what an HBO miniseries that would be. You see, we're falling into the trap of looking for more miracles, of looking for more ways to confirm the truth of the word. Because you see, what movies are, they're a spectacle. We, we look at movies, and the way movies function in our society, they're like signs and wonders. Look at how people line up for Marvel movies when they first come out. Look at how people line up for Harry Potter movies. Look at how people line up for all of these spectacular, marvelous things because they want to see something that will make their heart race. We tend to think of miracles in that way, but what they're for is to confirm the doctrine of Christ and the apostles. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that this doctrine has already been confirmed. You don't need any more miracles. You don't need any more spectacles. This has already been ratified from the days of Christ all the way to our day. Well, the final thing he says, God the Son spoke this at first, God the Father confirmed it with signs and miracles, and God the Holy Spirit gave gifts according to his will as he saw fit. The Holy Spirit is sent as the final testimony to the truth of Christ, confirming and ratifying the doctrine of the gospel. Notice that these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is a little bit different than signs and wonders, raising the dead, healing sicknesses. The gifts of the Spirit that Paul's speaking about were tongues, prophecy, gifts for edification. Now, when we speak about the gifts of the Spirit, we sometimes think this age is over with. There are no more gifts of the Spirit. I'm not a Pentecostal. I didn't go Pentecostal this week, so don't worry. I'm not saying that there are charismatic gifts. I'm not saying that you need to speak in tongues to be saved. But what I am going to say to you is that the Spirit is still at work in the church confirming the word of the gospel in the most important way that he ever has. Turn to John 16. John 16, verse 5. John 16, 5, the uh, Lord teaches the disciples and says, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come... 
He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The simple point is this. The work of the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit in the church today is that he overwhelms, proves, and convinces you infallibly of the truth of the gospel. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And that's the most important thing the Holy Spirit can do because as we learn in this passage, if we do not give heed to these things, we will drift away to damnation forever. But we must give the more earnest heed to these things because the Lord Jesus is the author, God the Father confirmed it, and the Holy Spirit has overwhelmed your heart to convince you of the truth of it. Pay attention to it. Day in and day out. And as you focus upon the light of the gospel, as you focus upon the glory of Christ, he will bring you safely to the shore. He will bring you safely to the harbor of eternity. But if you do not, if you neglect these things, you will drift away. And in drifting away, you will be guilty of great transgression where there is no escape. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the reminder of the things we've heard and how we must give the more earnest heed. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would stir up our hearts to give heed to the glories of Christ, to the doctrine of salvation that he's published to us. We pray, O oh Lord, you would help us to see the glories of the triune God in the work and ministry of Christ. And we pray that you would preserve us from drifting away. Please remind us of the danger that we stand in, in, uh, in danger of. Please remind us that the things we deal with in your word are life and death. And we pray that you would lash our bark to the Lord Jesus by the work of the Spirit. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.